This message was recorded at North 2013, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy for us to uh, see this international family of churches growing. It's been great to now be partnering into Africa. It's been wonderful over the last few years to have been partnering in Canada and now to see what God's doing in us and through us in Europe. It's just wonderful, isn't it, what God's doing? And uh, just to hear those stirring words tonight as we heard town after city after area after nation, just cool. We've got a wonderful inheritance, dear friends. God is going to cause us to play our part in impacting the nations. You see, it's always been God's heart. It's always been God's desire that he would dwell with his people. It's always been God's desire that he would come and fill planet Earth with his glory. That's as it was in the beginning. As it was right at the beginning. To quote Greg Beale, he says this in his amazing commentary, his amazing biblical theology of the presence of God called the temple and the church's mission. He says this, From the beginning to the end of the Bible... It's the story of God's presence. It's the story of God with us. It's the story of God's manifestation, the manifestation of his presence on planet Earth. It started in the garden. The garden was like the very first temple. Eden was like this first temple. It's like the heavenlies... And the earth intersected at one point. And that one point where it intersected, where God's glory came down, where the manifestation of his presence was, was Eden. Where he would walk with man, where he would talk with man, where he would share his plans with man. Tom Wright says this, Eden was the place where God himself promised to come and live. This was the place where God's glory came to rest. It was the place where heaven and earth met. God's habitation. God's place. God's dwelling. And he said to man, he said to Adam, two things primarily. He said, firstly... Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth with people just like you, with image bearers, with those who bear the image of the glory of God. He said another thing. He said, look after the garden. We tend to miss that. It's in... Genesis 2, chapter, uh, Genesis 2, verse 15, it says this. God put Adam in the garden to work and to care 
for it. And we just think Adam had a few green fingers. We just think Adam was a bit of a gardener. We think that Adam had a bit of thing about horticulture, growing a few roses. Isn't that nice? If you're Steve Hurd, a few vegetables. It's just lovely that uh, God has a bit of a green finger. No, this was something very special. This was about being a priest of God in the garden representing God. I'll tell you why we know that. Because in Numbers, a little later on in the revelation of God, as things unfold, exactly the same words to work and to care for are used for the priests. In fact, they're translated differently in our Bibles, but they're exactly the same Hebrew words. And we get in Numbers to guard and to serve, or to serve and to guard. It's exactly the same as to look after and care for. And Adam was supposed to guard the garden, the guarded place, the garden. He was supposed to look after it on God's behalf. He was God's representative on planet Earth. He was God's vice-regent, his viceroy. He was his representative and he was supposed to guard the garden to look after the temple and let no impure thing in. So the question is this. A few verses later, where does the snake come from? See, he didn't guard the garden. He didn't look after the presence. He didn't look after the temple, but he allowed the snake to come in. And then the serpent starts to undermine God's very character. He starts to undermine God's very word. He starts to undermine what God has said to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? And of course, through their sin, through their disobedience, through their not being God's representative, through them not honouring God, through them not guarding and serving, sin flooded in. Sin rushed in. But even there, at the very beginning, we get this amazing hint. It's a bit crazy, but right at the beginning, even when man's being banished from the garden, he's banished from the presence, he's banished from this place where heaven intersects with earth, flaming cherubs banish him from it. God says, yeah, but one day there's coming a deliverer. One day, your very seed bit cryptic, but we don't really understand what that meant. They didn't get what that meant. Your seed will crush the serpent's head. Yeah, he'll bite your heel. He'll bite the heel, but you, the seed, will crush the serpent's head. And so we get this hint of restoration. We get this hint that one day God is going to come and put all things right. God is going to come and make right to bring justification, to bring righteousness, to put it back again. Creation is like out of kilter. Creation is like twisted. Creation is like suddenly marred. But one day God says, but one day the seed of the woman will come and restore. The seed of the woman will come. And one day there'll be restoration of this, heaven on earth. One day there'll be restoration. One day again the presence will come. We get a little hint a little bit later through, again, one man. God loves to start small. It was great to be able to start this camp with 400 and so people 10 years ago. And now to see what it's grown. God loves the small. He loves to start small. And God started again with a man called Abraham. Renamed him Abraham. 
bit of a joke, really. Couldn't father any. Now he's going to be the father of multitudes. And God says to him, through you, Abraham, through your seed, the whole world is going to be blessed. And God gave him a land. God gave him a portion of land in which to put his foot down and say, it starts here. It starts in this bit of land. It was never supposed to be a holy land. It was never supposed to be a bit separate. It was simply the first footprint. It was simply the first bit to take the land in order to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. This isn't about finding some holy land. This isn't about finding some holy bit of ground on planet Earth. This is about filling every square inch of planet Earth with the glory of God. That's what God has called us to do. And that is God's plan and that is God's purpose. And this people that came out of Abraham, his son and his son's sons, became a people, became Israel, became a nation, became a people. Now, the Old Testament story, as you well know, is a story of success and decline. Success and decline. And of course, this family declined. Went down into Egypt. We know the story. Through Joseph. But through another man, through Moses, God brought them out of Egypt and into, again, the promised land. And God did something very strange with Moses. The trouble is, we know the story so well, but it was very odd. He created a weird tent, a strange dwelling place. And on the outside, it didn't look an awful lot at all, with skins and covers. But on the inside, it was full of of vibrancy and colour and majesty. In fact, if you study it carefully, it represented a beautiful garden. This was a second Eden. This was another dwelling place. This was another intersection of heaven with earth. And God said he would come and dwell in the tent. In fact, actually dwell in only one part of the tent and one part of that part of the tent. It's all a bit strange, but suddenly the presence of God is again with his people. God is back. He's with them. And mighty victories ensue. And land is taken. The footprint is taken. The land promised to Abraham is taken. The footprint is taken. A bit of land is secured. The first part that's going to be just a down payment on the whole planet is taken. And through David, the great king, with his great collections. And through his son Solomon, a physical representation of this temple, this tabernacle, is built. It's now a temple. But it's very similar. It's got the same structures. It's now got bricks and mortar instead of skins. But inside, it's still a garden. Inside, it's still full of wonderful tapestries. Inside, it's still full of glory. Inside, it's still full of wonder. It's still full of majesty. And in one part of it, the, the holy of holies, the glory of God dwells, the Shekinah glory in between the Ark of the Covenant. Da, 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 da. Oh, that's another story. 
the glory dwelling. And it said, when they dedicated the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple and he set it up according to the pattern, according to how God had written it in the book, it said the glory came. It said heaven invaded earth once again. This was filled with the glory of God. God's back. He's come. His glory is there. And it said even the priests couldn't minister. They couldn't stand before God to do their task. Such was the glory. Such was the presence. They fell before God because God was in the building. Wonderful. A few square feet of planet earth taken up with the glory of God. But if you remember the story, it's one of success and one of decline. One of success and one of decline. And of course the people, their hearts go after other gods. Kings arise who don't honour David and Solomon and the fathers. Don't honour God anymore. And so God departs. The people are put into exile. And something dreadful happens. Something absolutely awful happens. Something that if we understood the magnitude of it would cut us to the quick, would absolutely ruin us. For to be the people of God was to have God with you, was to have God dwell with you, was to have God be with you, was to have his presence in the temple for him to be there in his glory. It says an awful thing in Ezekiel 10 verse 18. It says, and then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. God left. In judgment, people into exile. God left the temple. The glory was gone. Ichabod, (laughs) the glory departed. Now, the story is one of decline, success, decline, success. And of course, the people of God, under God's amazing sovereignty, under God's amazing plan and provision, come back to the land, to that very first footprint. They come back in a couple of stages. They build the walls. And they come and they build a second temple. They build another edifice. Actually not quite as glorious as the first. And there is no recorded sense that God comes back to the second temple. It's such a tragedy at the end of the Old Testament. I don't know if you quite realize the significance of it for them as a people. They come Out of exile, they thought, back to the land, they thought, that God had given them. And they expected God to be back in the house. They expected the glory to come back. They expected the priest not to better stand because the glory cloud, the wonder of his presence was back. But no glory. And it's rather full of pathos if you read some of those prophetic writings It says those who were old enough, they'd been in exile for some 70 years, those who were old enough to remember the glory days, remember what the temple was like with the glory in, it said they wept. And then you get a couple of amazing prophetic words. Just listen to these. This is Haggai 
writing at this time, Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. God speaks and he says this to these weeping people. Who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Yeah, to be honest. It ain't as glorious. It's not as big. It's not as mighty. It's not as powerful. And most importantly, God ain't there. But God says this. Be strong. Don't fear, for I am going to be with you. And my spirit will remain with you. Don't fear, for in a little while I will fill this house with glory. And the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And suddenly, the Old Testament comes to a close. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. There's this prophetic foghorn into the distance that says this. And then suddenly, says Malachi, the Lord you are seeking will come to the temple. The Lord you're seeking, the glory that you're asking for, he will come back. But he's not here right now. And then we get a little intermission of 400 years. Silence. No glory. And what that did for the people of God was devastating. Now there was a mixture. There was a rising anticipation that one day Messiah would come. One day the glory of God would come back. One day God's man would come. One day this would happen. But right now, no glory. And the people in their psyche, in their thinking, it's like they were still in exile. Do you know what? It doesn't matter to us that we're back in the land, because this isn't about the land anyway. It doesn't matter to us that we're here in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter to us that we've got this great temple And Herod made it even greater. That doesn't matter to us. We've got no glory. It's like we're still in exile. That's what we feel like. It's like we're still foreigners and strangers in the land God's given us. Why? Because God ain't there. God's not there. It's like going home when you're expecting someone to be there and the house is all shut up. And you realise a house without... Your loved one isn't at home. It's just a house. Not home anymore because that loved one isn't there. The glory was gone. And then, some 400 years later, on a hillside in Bethlehem, suddenly, the skies of Israel are lit up with the glory of the Lord. Angels proclaiming glory to God in the highest. God's back. He's coming. We're proclaiming to you peace on the earth. Good news to you. God's coming back. Do you think they thought, what does that mean? They knew what it meant. God was coming back. The glory is coming back. Glory filled the skies. Angels were there. That's what it was like with the Ark of the Covenant. Angels were there. Glory, suddenly they're in the skies. Angels proclaiming the glory is coming back. 
And the words to Mary was that this one, this Yeshua, this Messiah, this Jesus, is going to be Emmanuel. God with us. God's come back. God's back with us in the person of Jesus. And there's just such a a wonderful little episode that happens. And you can so easily miss it. It's actually one of the episodes in the Bible that almost always moves me to tears when I read it. It's the episode of Simeon and Anna in the temple. It's so glorious. It's so wonderful. Simeon had been waiting in the temple. And it says he'd been waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel. It's Messiah speak. He'd been waiting for God to come back. He's an old man at this stage, but God has promised him that he would not die until he'd seen the glory, until he'd seen the Lord come back. And suddenly, at the very end of his life, as a very elderly, ancient man, Mary and Joseph come into the temple to bring the baby Jesus to do for him what the law required. And suddenly, Simeon gets a revelation. The glory's back. Christ is here. The Lord is here. He's come back to the temple. No longer in a glory cloud, but in a body. He doesn't understand that, but he takes the baby. He said, I've seen it. I've seen the salvation of Israel, the light of the world, not of just Israel, of the whole world. I've seen it. And he handles him and he touches him and he's got this little baby in his arm that is the hope of all things, the hope of the world. The glory is back. John, amazingly, John, the closest friend that Jesus has, the inner circle The one who didn't run away at the cross. The one who was the first man. I know women get there first. They often do. But the first man to get to the open tomb saw and believed. There at the cross. There at the resurrection. John writes in his memoirs later, The Word, the Word, who was with God from the beginning, who was God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt. In fact, he uses an unusual word. The word he uses isn't dwelt, it's tabernacled. The the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us and we have seen his glory. The glory has come back in Christ. I love the message translation or paraphrase of that. It says God has again pitched his tent on planet earth. God pitched his tent. He tabernacled amongst us. Suddenly heaven has invaded earth. This space is again filled. This space is again filled with Jesus. As he starts his ministry some perhaps 30 years later from that day in the temple when Simeon said, I've seen the glory. When the heavens open at his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He goes not into a garden, 
but into a wilderness. Do you notice the symmetry of that? The first man in a beautiful garden called to obey God. Just had God's word. That's all he had. God said, do this and don't do that. Just God's word to rely on. The last Adam, the second man, the new man, the new creation, the new Eden, the new temple, goes into a desert where he battles again the serpent. And he starts to put right what was put wrong. He starts to serve and guard again. He starts when the serpent encounters him. Has God really said? Same lies, doesn't change. He answers him with the word of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. And suddenly the Redeemer has come. Suddenly the hope of all the world has come to restore the cosmos. Come again. God is back to restore all things. And then if you read John's Gospel, it's a fascinating Gospel. I, I so love John's Gospel. So fills in gaps and different perspective than Matthew, Mark and Luke. Probably written sometime later. He starts this Gospel and Jesus' ministry with doing something really weird. Cleansing the temple. It says this in John 2, 14 to 19. And in the temple courts, Jesus has gone to the temple. The glory has come back to the temple. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. He manufactures it. He makes it there and then. This is a premeditated act. He made a whip of cords. What are you doing, Jesus? You'll find out. <laughs> are you going to be making a lot of those to sell them in the temple? I don't think so. One will do. He made a whip out of cords and drove out from the temple court saying, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? It's an interesting question. They knew the significance of what he was claiming. He was claiming... some authority in the temple and he was challenging their authority what authority have you got to do these things Jesus answered them amazingly destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days they don't understand later he's accused of that very crime how can you destroy the temple it took years to us to build they don't understand what he's talking about he's talking about himself as the temple he's talking about himself as the fulfillment of heaven touching earth he's talking about himself as the fulfillment of this interface nick perrin who happens to be tom wright's researcher 
in his book, says this. It was this direct challenge, calling the temple authorities into question, it was this direct challenge that eventually cost Jesus his life. This was no sideshow. He's talking about throwing the money keepers out of the temple. This was no sideshow. This wasn't him kind of losing it a bit, being a bit uncool one day, being a bit grumpy. I could be like that one day, a bit grumpy, saying things I probably... No, it wasn't him being a sideshow. But it was the climatic epitome of his career. Jesus, this is profound. Listen to this. When I read this, it just struck me so much. Jesus saw himself as nothing less than the embodiment of the temple. That's who Jesus saw himself as. He saw himself as God's king come back, as God's rule come back, as God's glory come back. Here he was, come back. And Jesus operated his whole life just like a temple. You say, Jeremy, that's a bit strange. What do you mean? I'll tell you what I mean. The Jews were told, you must go to the temple. You must go and do this. You must come to the temple. You must do this, do that. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. I I thought we were supposed to get rest in the temple. No, come to me and I'll give you rest. There were certain people that were forbidden from going anywhere near the temple. It was kind of unfair. We would say definitely politically incorrect. There were some people that were totally banned from being in the temple, particularly couple of groups, the lame and the blind. What did Jesus go around doing? Healing the lame and restoring sight to the blind. It is about miracles, it is about healing, but it's specifically about giving access to this temple again. It's specifically about saying, nothing now disqualifies you from coming. You can come to the temple. If you're blind, I'll heal you. If you're lame, I'll raise you up. You can come to this temple now. The temple gates are open. That's what he's saying. The temple was the only place, the only place that you could get forgiveness. It was a heinous crime for anyone to pronounce forgiveness that didn't come through the temple system. What does Jesus go about doing? He says to the man who was let down through the roof, crippled by his his four friends, your sins are forgiven. What? Only the temple can do that. Yet, your sins are forgiven. He says to the woman of ill repute, he says, you're forgiven. Only the temple can do that. Only God in the temple can do that. Who do you think you are, Jesus? I'll tell you who he thinks he is. He's a mobile temple. The temple's on the move. God's back in Israel. This is what Tom Wright says. Heaven and earth no longer joined up in the temple in Jerusalem. But the joining was very visible where the healings were taking place and where forgiveness was happening The joining place was where Jesus was and in what he was doing. Jesus was a walking temple, a living, breathing place where God was living. 
God's back. He's with us. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it glorious what Jesus came to do? And of course, the ultimate sacrificial act, the first proclamation about who Jesus is, publicly anyway, is from his cousin John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's temple language. You brought the Lamb to be sacrificed for your sins. What do you mean the Lamb of God? Well, later, because of his temple misdemeanors, Jesus is accused of sedition. He's accused of trying to bring the authorities down. He's accused of trying to disrupt our nice, tidy temple system where God, we know God's not here anymore. You know, we know we're only the Wizard of Oz, as Scott was saying. We know that we, you know, we're really this little man pretending to be very big. We know that, but you're challenging us. We know there's nothing behind the curtain. There's been nothing behind the curtain for years. But don't challenge us. Suddenly this man had the audacity to challenge them. And for that, they crucified him. To keep the peace, the Romans crucified him. But he was dying for another reason. He was dying to put every wrong right. He was dying to restore the cosmos. He was dying to put right what Adam started to put wrong. He was dying to pay for every sin committed from Adam through to the end of the earth. He died for us in our place. What an amazing saviour. And while he was dying, don't miss this, on the very day of atonement, on the very day that the high priest should be going in behind the curtain, there's nothing really there anymore, we don't tell anyone, on that very day, on that very day of atonement, on the very day in the Jewish calendar when sins should have been atoned for, God, through Christ, was atoning for all the sins of the world. And when he breathed his last and said, not I'm finished, but it's finished, I've accomplished it, I've done it, it's like his body was torn, and at that very moment the temple curtain was ripped from heaven to earth. Access free now into the glory. No holds barred. Nothing stopping you coming in. Anyone now can come in to the glory, can come in to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful sacrifice. Now, Jesus said to his disciples before he went a few strange things. A few things that only later they'd understand. One of the strange things he said, and again it's in John, I love John's Gospel. One of the things he said to them was about a strange building. And when I was a son, in Sunday school, as I think I told you, on the first night I became a Christian at the age of eight. And I loved Sunday school, I loved the stories. I was told all about Jesus, obviously told all about these stories and I was told that one of the things that Jesus was doing is like preparing me a special bedroom, a special room one day in heaven. I thought it was a bit strange because I had a bedroom. 
but Jesus seemed to have a better one. And uh, he was up there in space somewhere and was preparing me this bedroom, which was very nice. And <coughs> one day I'd hoped to stay alone in this bedroom for eternity. And uh, it just seemed a little strange to me as a child. And the scriptures they used was this scripture in John 14, in my father's house and many rooms, I go to prepare a room for you. Oh, great. I get a room on my own again. Superb. It's nothing to do with some heavenly age. It's about God building the temple again. It's about God restoring the temple. This is what he actually says. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will come back and take you to be with me. We're going to be together in this, and you'll be with me. And the Father will give you another counsellor, one just like me, who will be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. You will know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and we will come to you, and we will make our home, our dwelling in you. This is not about eternity. This is about the birth of the church. For just only a few weeks later, after his glorious death, wonderful resurrection, amazing ascension, where he sat down at the Father's right hand to say, to demonstrate, I finished my work, it's accomplished. He poured forth the promised Holy Spirit, the glory of God coming down. And those disciples in the upper room... You can imagine they'd been fearful for the Jews. They'd been worried about what would happen. We know what they did to Jesus. What will they do to us? They're, they're concerned. They're worried. They're locked away. They know he's alive, but he's gone. Because he'd said to them, he'd said to them back in John 14, I'm not going to be with you much longer. What? What do you mean you're not going to be with us much longer? You're the temple. You're the hope of Israel. You're the glory. The glory's come back. Don't go. We don't want the glory to go again. We're not going to let you go. Get behind me, Satan. I must go. But if I go, I'll send another. And you can remember those disciples thinking, we made a big mistake. We shouldn't have let him go. John, you should have held on to him. You know, I, I saw John, you were just there. When he went up in the air, you, you could have grabbed him. You could have held him. Those angels didn't look too big anyway. I reckon there's, there's, there's 120. We could have taken them down. We could have kept him. We could have said the glories. We could have held on to the glory. We could have had him back. It's not fair. We haven't got our Messiah anymore. The glory's gone. Suddenly, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The Ruach of God. Suddenly, flames of fire. It said in Solomon's day that fire came from heaven to earth. Suddenly, fire is again on these disciples. And suddenly, these weakened, timid, disillusioned, rather fearful disciples are filled with glory. 
The glory's back. He's back. And you can imagine these disciples talking to one another. Peter saying, he's back with me. He's in me. I can feel the Messiah. I can feel him right in here. I suddenly feel very bold. I suddenly feel very... And John's going, yeah, I feel it myself. And, 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 and Thomas is saying, well, I doubt that very much. Because I think... Because he's in me. And suddenly they sense the Messiah's back. God's back. And he's back in the house. And he's back in temples not made of bricks and mortar. He's back in a living, breathing organism called the church. He's back. Dear friends, God's back. God's in the house. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. What has God been doing since the fall of man? The answer is that God has been constructing a building, a temple. And that building is the church. You see, now there is an intersection between heaven and earth. No longer Eden, no longer the tabernacle, no longer the temple, no longer even the earthly body of Jesus, but actually now the resurrected body of Jesus called the church. That's who we are, the very body of Christ. We are now the temple. We are now the place where God lives. God's in the building. God's amongst us. Listen to what the writers say. Hebrews 3 verse 6, Christ is a faithful son over God's house, temple, and we are his house, temple. 1 Peter 2, 5 to 9, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, spiritual temple, a royal priesthood. Ephesians 2, 21 onwards, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too, use northern language, right? Use are being built together to become a temple, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, to 9 and 16. You are God's building. You are God's temple. And God's spirit lives in you. God's temple is sacred and you are the temple. Dear friends, we're not just some club. We're not just some organisation. We're not just some denomination. We're the temple of the living God. God's with us. God's back. God's in the building. And our call is to do what Adam failed to do. Adam was supposed to move heaven to earth. He was supposed to under the anointing and authority of God, populate all the earth with little Adams and Eves. Little image bearers, little glory bearers. That's what he was supposed to do. Fill the whole earth. Jesus gathers his disciples as the new Adam, or last Adam, new man, as the new humanity, as the new creation. And he says, as Joe brilliantly pointed out to us the other day, this morning... <laughs> feels like the other day, this morning, go and fill all the earth with little Christs, Christians, with little followers of me. Go and do it. Our dear friends, our commission, 
our mission is to fill every square inch of planet Earth with the glory of God. How are we going to do that? By being living, breathing temples of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. Every town, every city, every village. Everywhere needs to be full of the glory of the Lord. This is Habakkuk's great cry at the end of the Old Testament. When the glory has departed, Habakkuk rings this great shout out. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. And to quote Mr. Beale again, the Old Testament tabernacle and temples were symbolically designed to point to the cosmic, I love these words, to the cosmic eschatological reality that God's tabernacle, I love them but I just can't read them, that God's tabernacling presence, formerly limited to the Holy of Holies, is going to be extended throughout the whole earth. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now one day, when Jesus returns to a renewed and restored planet earth, by the way, not some mansion in the sky, this earth, all things will be restored. But we have the glorious privilege of declaring beforehand, your kingdom come on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven invading earth. Now let me just apply this in two areas for us. Number one, a corporate application. We should always start with a corporate. We're going to end with it as well. We are the dwelling place of God. Something mighty happens. Something miraculous happens. Something incredible happens when we gather as the people of God. Don't you ever look down on the church. Don't you ever say, wasn't much of a meeting today. Didn't do very well today. This is God's holy temple. This is God's precious bride. This is the very temple, this is the very body of Christ. This is the very glory of God on planet Earth. And he promises when two or three, and you, I found it's very hard to have a meeting with less than that, when two or three gather in my name, I guess it depends on the voices in your head, but <laughs> sometimes I'm having all sorts of meetings going on. <laughs> but when two or three gather in my name, There I am in the midst. What marks us out, dear friends? Have you ever thought about that? What marks us out? Is it our great worship? And I think we have great worship, by the way. Fabulous band. It's brilliant. Sensitive. Brilliant musicianship. I mean, we've come a long way. First, New Frontiers. It wasn't New Frontiers then. It was hardly Coastlands. The first church I went to, led by a guy who couldn't play a violin. If there's any instrument you don't want to play well, it's the violin. I love you, Lord. You know, it wasn't great. 
people want to go back to those days. I said, wasn't it good in the early days? You obviously weren't there. <laughs> I love what we've got. I love the musicianship. So, but do you know what? That doesn't mark us out. I love the proclamation of his word, the communication of truth. I love it. I want to, we want to get better at it. We want to study more. But you know what, what marks us out isn't the ability to communicate. There are better people who can communicate. There are better people who can play instruments. Is it our great hospitality? The hospitality has been great this week. Thank you for those who've served us brilliantly. But, you know, there are better restaurants. Other restaurants are available. That's not what marks us out. What marks us out is the presence. What marks us out is God is with us. He's in the house. Dear friends, let's not dial down his presence. Let's not dial down that. Let's not lose his presence. Now, some people confuse the presence of God with gifts of the Spirit. They say, actually, to have more presence, we just need loads and loads of gifts. I've been in meetings where we've had far too many gifts of the Spirit. Far too many. I've also been in meetings where we've had hardly any. I was in a meeting recently with another movement. I don't think there were any visible, vocal gifts in exercise. But boy, did the presence come down when we were led in worship. Boy, was God in the house. Boy, were people engaging. Now, I believe we should exercise gifts of the Spirit. I believe we are a kingdom of priests. And in the Old Testament, they brought their gifts. They brought, the priests brought gifts as an offering. And we bring our gifts. We bring our prophetic words. We bring tongues, languages. We bring intimate interpretations. We bring bring these beautiful songs. We bring these things as offerings. But we're not doing it for us. And we're not doing it for the outsider. We're doing it for the Lord. It's his presence we're seeking. If we bring a gift, it's to him. If we bring an offering, it's to him. If we bring something, it's to him. Now, he chooses to use it, and he'll bless it. The unsaved will say, wow, God. When it says the unsaved will fall down and say God's in the house, it's as a response to spiritual gifts, actually. But what we're going for, we're not just I spy spiritual gifts. We don't just say, who can have the most spiritual gifts in the meeting? We had two tongues. We had three. We had four. Brilliant, our meeting, four. It's about the presence. It's about seeking him. It's about him being in the house, him being amongst us, and us honouring him. When we gather, we don't gather to a band. We don't gather to a speaker. We don't gather to a movement. We gather to Jesus. We gather to his presence. See, Moses got it. It's already been quoted this week. Moses got it. There was a little test going on between Moses and God. God says, I've had it with these people. But you are like, like you, had it with them. See how you respond to this. I know how I'd have responded. I'd have said, thank you, Lord, you finally see it. (laughs) I've had trouble with this slot for years. Good that you got on my page, God. Moses doesn't. Moses said, nah, (laughs) ha, ha. See that one? No, 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 no. No, I see that one. No, these are your people, Lord. What will the nation say if you don't go with us? And God says, okay, I'll cut you a deal. How about an angel? 
She ought to go, whoa, angel. Probably get a book out of it. Moses goes, see through that one. Don't want an angel, thanks. Seen angels. They're great, wonderful. I want you. If you don't go with us, Lord, we're not going. It's you, Lord. We want God back in the house. We don't want angels, although we honour what they do and all that stuff. It's you. It's your presence we want, Lord. You with us. Dear friends, let's hunger for the presence of God amongst us. Let's linger in his presence. Let's give space for his presence. Now, I'm not just talking about our meetings. I'm talking about everything we do. I'm talking about our whole lives. Wherever we are, wherever we go, Because God's intent, it says in Ephesians 3, verse 10, God's intent is that now, through the church, his manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, should be made known. You see, God has a wonderful plan, A, to fill the earth with his glory. It's always been through this temple. It's always been through this body, Christ, the church. And he is going to fill this earth, fill planet earth with the glory through you. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. You. Friends, you're the light of the world. You're the hope of the world. You're the glory of God. The glory of God. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill shouldn't be hidden. People don't light lamps and put them under bowls. No, they put them on their stand and they give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Interesting how he connects it with good deeds. I honestly believe that the message of Jubilee Plus the message of good news to the poor, the message of hope for the marginalised and the downtrodden is one of the ways that the glory of God is going to be seen in our nation. This is the hope for broken Britain, not a new political promise, but the church as the hands of Christ in the community. The church ministering love and grace and faith and reaching out. And whether it's furniture stores, whether it's working with asylum seekers, refugees, whether it's working with Christians against poverty, whether it's working with food banks, it's demonstrating the love of God, the glory of God. Why would you do this for us? People say, because God loves you and his glory is being manifest. Lastly, for us individually, you are the temple wherever you go. You can't be a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Whether you like it or not, in your office, in your boardroom, in your school gate, in your social club, in your pub, down your street, in your neighbourhood, where you hang out, Wherever you go, whether you have a job or not, this is not about employment, it's about you, wherever you go. You go somewhere. You live somewhere. You buy stuff. Even if you have it ordered to your door, you have to open the door to somebody to take it. You meet people. 
And most of them don't have the glory of God in. You do. And people see it. We've had, Anna and I, it's weird. We've had people come up to us. We were on holiday once in Greece. The irony is we were just having an argument. (laughs) I shouldn't have told you that. The story would have been so much better. Don't be honest. You're not telling the truth, you're preaching. Right. (laughs) Little note to self. Joking. We just had an argument. A couple came up to us and said, we've just been watching you. I thought, yeah, I bet you have. (laughs) There's something about you too. There's some, something, it's some love or some, what is it about you two? We were able to share the gospel. People notice. People see it. I think I shared with you this time last year about the tragedy of my sister and how we've had to walk through that vulnerability. She's still actually doing very well, still very disabled, still very much needing God's healing and God's help. But she's recovering little by little, slowly by slowly. But when we walked into the hospital ward, the very first time we'd seen her after this massive cranial uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage that she she had, so likely to die, not likely to come out of this coma, been in it for days. Suddenly we walked in talking to the doctors and nurses and suddenly my sister stirs from this coma. What's that all about? Yeah, it could have been that she heard my voice. You know, that's, I think it was the glory came. I think it was the kingdom showed up. I think it was God was in the house, in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's in you, dear friends, the hope of glory. Wherever you go, Whatever you do, you are mobile tabernacles. Let me end with this illustration. I love the book of John. Have I ever told you that? John chapter 7. Jesus uses some temple imagery that we don't always get. I won't have time to give you the story, but it's at the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it, the imagery in the Feast of Tabernacles is all about water. And at a very poignant moment in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in a large crowd in a very loud voice, says this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The whole ceremony has been about thirst. It's actually been about living water. It's actually a reenactment of Ezekiel 47, about the rivers of living water flowing from the temple, interestingly enough. It's on the temple steps, it's happening. And Jesus says, it's not about this temple anymore. It's not about this bricks and mortar. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, from your... And then he uses a technical word for the temple. It's the Greek word koleos, which means the very centre of the centre of the centre. The Jews believed that Israel was the centre of the world. It's not geographically but it is spiritually in their day they believed that Jerusalem was the centre of Israel it's not geographically but it was spiritually and they believed that the temple was the centre of Jerusalem it's not geographically but it was spiritually and they had a phrase for the temple and it was the koleos of God the centre of the centre of the centre we have the same word for our colon beautiful isn't it the coleos, the colon, because we kind of believe there was a, something of guts, there was a gut feeling. And Jesus says, from your guts, from your innermost being, from your temple will flow what? Rivers of living water. Wherever you go, 
there's a river of living water. And when the Bible talks about rivers of living water, it's always talking about evangelistic breakthrough. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And in that living water flowing out from Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47, it said it even went to the deadest place, what we call the Dead Sea, and it brought life. But you know, it's very tough in Yorkshire. I don't care how tough it is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this glory, wherever you go, wherever you go, the toughest place, the glory of God is going to flow out from you and bring life. Dear friends, we are living tabernacles. The glory's back and it's in a body again. It's in you. Get it? God's back in the house. He's with us as a community. It's a corporate thing, of course. But also, he's in you, wherever you go. Now, we're going to end this evening. I wonder whether the band would be kind enough to come back. They've served us so magnificently. Let's welcome them as they come back. end this meeting we talked about how we do this we could pray for lots of individuals shall I tell you what the danger of that is I mean I love praying for individuals if we prayed for you you'd be filled with the spirit no doubt lay hands on you you get filled it's wonderful the danger is in a setting like this we'll call them out there'll be 200 a couple of hundred people at the front getting prayed for who think they're getting it but there'll be 1500 of you out there thinking that they're getting it we're all getting it we've all got it we're all going to get the spirit this is for everyone when Peter proclaims this on the day of Pentecost he says this promise is for you your children and all who are afar off everyone if you said to Peter Peter we're preaching 2,000 years later he said man that's pretty far off if you'd also said Peter We're preaching 2,000 miles away. He'd say, man, that's pretty far off. This is to all who are far off. It's the same promise. They were all filled with the Spirit. They all spoke in new languages. They all gave glory to God. They all became mobile tabernacles. This isn't a promise for a few select ones or some really needy ones. This is a promise for all God's children that we are a Spirit-filled community. So what we're going to do now is do what temples do. Temples have worship. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to worship our Messiah. We're going to worship our Saviour. We're going to worship the one who's reconciled us again, who's put right all of our wrongs. We're going to worship the one who tore the temple curtain for us that we might stand clean before him. And we're going to pray that this barn is filled with the glory of God. Not just an experience tonight, but that you take something home of the glory of God, a glory carrier, a mobile tabernacle, that wherever we go, we'd be those filled with the Spirit. Let's stand, let's worship the Lord Jesus. We're going to be really open and sensitive to the prophetic in this next 15 minutes. But let's worship Jesus.